All right, well, Psalm 67. You know, if we were to take a poll and have everyone in here vote on what their favorite psalm is, it's always interesting how you might have one favorite psalm and then you actually start studying the psalms and your favorite psalm changes. But uh, undoubtedly, if we was to take a poll in most churches and ask you out of the 150 psalms, which one was your favorite, there would probably be many answers of Psalm 23. Some others may say Psalm 90. Others yet may say Psalm 119. But I don't know that anyone would say Psalm 67. And you know, that's a shame because it is a masterpiece of a poem. You may have a favorite passage in the Psalms. You may have a favorite verse in the Psalms. But I submit to you this morning that Psalm 67 is one of the most precious Psalms that we have studied up until this point. And yet it is largely unappreciated by even the greatest of Bible teachers and commentators. Even the great Martin Luther completely ignores Psalm 67 in his vast five-volume study of the book of Psalms. However, Mr. John Stott isn't so quick to glance over this amazing little poem. Stott, John Stott included Psalm 67 in his book entitled Favorite Psalms. The great Bible commentator Mr. Alexander McLaren writes, this psalm is a truly missionary psalm. In its clear anticipation of the universal spread of the knowledge of God, in its firm grasp of the thought that the church has its blessings in order to the evangelization of the world, and in its intensity of longing that from all the ends of the earth a shout of praise may go up to the God who has sent some rays of his light into them all and committed to his people the task of carrying a brighter illumination to every land. End quote from Mr. McLaren. Psalm 67 is all about blessing the blessing of God himself to his people and to the nations. As we consider this great missionary song, may we be instructed, encouraged, and inspired concerning God's heart for the evangelization of the world. We have three basic points this morning. Point number one, verses one and two. God blesses his people. Simple enough so far. The second point is God's people bless the nations with God. That's verses 3 through 5. God's people bless the nations with God. And finally, blessings already but not yet in verses 6 and 7. First point. God blesses his people, verses 1 and 2. Second point is God's people bless the nations with God, verses 3 through 5. And last but not least, blessings already 
but not yet in verses 6 and 7. Somebody might say, Brother Joel, how do you come up with all this stuff about the Psalms? Probably an okay question to ask. Sometimes I like to ask myself that question as well. Sometimes things seem to be fairly straightforward in the Psalms and not very eventful. But I want to show you something. First time we've had the opportunity to talk about this kind of thing from the pulpit on Sunday morning. But I want to show you something that is a literary feature that the ancient Hebrew poets used to communicate truth. There's something in ancient Hebrew poetry called an inclusio. Say it with me. It's a nice, fun word. It just kind of flows. Inclusio. Come on now. Where's that at now? Reach way down there. Inclusio. Yes. And it is another way of saying an inclusion. And an inclusion or an inclusio is a literary device the Hebrew poets used to lay particular emphasis to certain subject matter in their poetry. An inclusion occurs when you have the same or similar ideas which begin and end a passage of Scripture. Let me show you the two great inclusios in Psalm 67. The first one occurs in verses 3 through 5. What do you notice about verses 3 and verse 5? They're same. That's right. Look at these Bible students in here this morning. Praise the Lord for them. But notice that verses 3 and verses 5 in your Bibles, now in my Bible, verses 3 through 5 are their own separate stanza. And what the psalmist is doing is by beginning verse 3 and verse 5 with the same exact thought, what the psalmist is doing is he is telling you what he is writing his poem about. Now, you could have probably figured that out without knowing the word inclusio or inclusion, but nevertheless, it is helpful for you to be aware of some of these categories and know that I've not fallen off my rocker when I come up with all this stuff about the Psalms. Now, the second great inclusio, Oh, I can't, I just can't say that enough. Inclusio, the second great inclusio in Psalm 67 is found in the ideas of the first verse and the last verse. Notice the similarities between Psalm 67 verse 1 and 67 verse 7. Verse 1, he said, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. In verse 7, he said, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, what in the world could this mean? What does it mean when you have dual inclusios in a passage of scripture. Well, this gives the two main emphases of Psalm 67. This is how it works. Using what we just learned, we're going to formulate our understanding of Psalm 67, and I'm going to give you this little one-liner. 
The blessings of God lead God's people to praise God and God's people praising God for his blessing in turns inspires the nations to praise God for his blessings. Say that again. Now, this is coming right out of the text. God's people, well, the blessings of God lead God's people to praise God, and God's people praising God for his blessings in turn inspire the nations to praise God for his blessings. So you have this sort of reciprocal. We've seen this happening before, this cyclical motion in the Psalms. And in this instance, the inclusios are sort of telling you what's going on. And the idea here is that the people of God, our praise, our worship, our thanksgiving of God is contagious. When the world around us sees the people of God worshiping, loving, adoring, praising, giving thanks to God, that is inspirational to them to believe and to receive the very God and the very gospel that we have believed and that we have received. But I want to also show you something very striking about Psalm 67. You know, it's amazing what's in the Bible when you actually sat down to study it. In verses, or in verse 1, he said, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That kind of sounds like another passage of scripture that I've read before. Wonder what that could be. Well, that's Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Now, pay attention closely if you are able, because Numbers chapter 6 and the passage that I'm about to read to you is what is called the blessing of Aaron. Now, you remember, Aaron is the first high priest of Israel as a nation. And Aaron has a very special blessing that he pronounces on the Jewish people just after God gives them the law and they are uh, moving through the wilderness toward the promised land. And uh, another way to say it, you could say the blessing of Aaron, or you could say the Aaronic blessing. Well, there's another new word for you. Look at that. Aren't you excited? It's the Aaronic blessing, or the blessing of Aaron. I want to read this great passage to you. It said, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That ironic blessing, this blessing of Aaron, is what the psalmist has in view in Psalm 67 verse 1. Now, there's a couple striking differences between the original. By the way, I can't help but give you this little nerdy piece of Bible information. But the oldest piece of the Old Testament that we have available to us is actually the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. Can you believe that? You know, they archaeologists and uh, so forth, they dig up uh, scrolls and parchments and pieces of rock or whatever, or they find different things with passages of Scripture written on it. 
And the oldest piece of the Old Testament that we have extant to us is the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter number 6, but there's more. The big difference between Numbers chapter 6 and Psalm 67 is this. There's another one too. I'm like, I can't, can't got to wait. Can't let all the, can't let the cat out of the bag completely at first. But when Aaron gives the blessing originally in Numbers chapter 6, it's only for Israel. But who is the blessing for in Psalm 67? Somebody said it. We got, oh, I like this. Interactive Bible preaching. Somebody say the nations. So originally in Numbers 6, when God gave Aaron the blessing, the priestly blessing, the ironic blessing to pronounce upon the Israelites, it was just for the Jews. But in Psalm 67, the psalmist picks up the blessing of Aaron and now he applies that to all the nations of the earth. And we're going to talk about this because this is significant. But what is the significance of the ironic blessing or the blessing of Aaron itself? I want to read you a quote from the great Dr. Van Gimmeren. He's the Old Testament prof, uh, professor from the seminary I attended. Dr. Van Gimmeren says, quote, An oriental monarch revealed in his facial expression either his pleasure or displeasure with the party who sought an audience with him. Similarly, God, the great king, assures his own that he receives them and cares for them with joy. Now, in the ancient world, when you would go and visit a great king, you know, we don't really have great kings in our world today. It's been replaced with democratic republics and democracies or dictators on the other end of the spectrum. But in the ancient world, in the ancient world of Mesopotamia, the Near East, it was ruled by kings. And if you had the opportunity to come into the presence of the king, when you would walk into his court, and the facial expression of that king would tell you immediately what kind of meeting this was about to be. And if the king was pleased with you, he would have his face shining upon you. And if the king was displeased and he would be looking right at you with a smile on his face. If he was displeased with you, he would turn his head and have a scowl. The profundity and the significance of the blessing of Aaron is that God, the great king of all the universe, looks upon his people every moment of every day with a smile on his face. Now uh, this is good news. A shining face turned towards someone is the opposite of a scowling face turned the other direction. The shining face of God implies relationship fellowship, friendship, warmth, and love. When we generally think of God's blessings, we usually think of things like health, wealth, good employment, happy relationships, good health, etc., etc. All that is included in the Aaronic blessing, but the main focus of the blessing of Aaron was to show the Jewish people that God himself desired a deep, intimate, personal relationship with his covenant people. And this is the main emphasis of the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron. It's relational. 
God desires to have a relationship with his people. And he desires to have a heart level relationship, an intimate relationship, a passionate personal relationship. Beware, brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, of seeking earthly blessings of health and wealth and prosperity. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 36, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Excuse me. The single greatest blessing of time and eternity is knowing the Lord personally and being favored by him. The blessing of Aaron is echoed and alluded to in the following Psalms. Psalm 4 and verse 6, Psalm 29 and verse 11, Psalm 31 verse 16, Psalm 80 verse 3, Psalm 80 verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. Three times in the 80th Psalm, the ironic blessing is echoed too. And also right here in our Psalm 67. The main difference between the original blessing of Aaron found in Numbers chapter 6 and the ironic blessing found in Numbers or Psalm 67, excuse me, is this. There's a change. In Numbers 6, Aaron says, Bless you. But notice what the psalmist said in verse 1 of Psalm 67. May God be gracious and bless us. It's not good enough for us to just believe that God blesses you. We must claim and appropriate the blessings of God for ourselves. It's one thing to believe that God blesses in general, but it's another thing altogether to actually lay hold of the blessing of Aaron for ourselves personally. It moves from, may the Lord bless you, Israel, to the Lord bless us, and then now to the entire world. But I want to show you something. I want to show you the significance of salvation to all nations. The shining face of God upon his people is symbolic of God's gracious, merciful, and personal fellowship with his covenant people. I want to show you in verse 2. Notice the phrase that, the word that. This is in order that. It's a statement of purpose. That your way. Now what is the purpose of Aaron's blessing on Israel? It is for the purpose that God's way may be known on earth, your saving power um, among all nations. The purpose for God blessing Israel as he did. There was three things encapsulated in the blessing of Aaron. It was protection, it was grace, and it was peace. And the reason why God gives this precious blessing of Aaron to the Jewish people is so for the purpose that they would in turn bless the nations. And this is the great theme of this psalm. This psalm is about gospel missions and worldwide evangelization. Point number two, God bless God's people bless the nations with God. How are these nations to know the Lord? There are at least two ways the nations will come 
to know the God of Israel. Number one, the power of salvation through God's people. And number two, the power of God's word to the people. So number one, two ways, the power of salvation through God's people. And number two, the power of God's word. The nations are brought to a saving faith by witnessing the blessing of a relationship with God and his power in saving his own people. Notice verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Why are all nations supposed to know God's saving power? It is because God has first saved us. Now this is important. May I say this is vital. Mr. John Stott has this great note on Psalm 67 verse 2. If only Aaron's, and I'm quoting, quote, if only Aaron's blessing would come true, if only God's mercy were granted to them, if only God were specially to bless them and the light of his smile were to be upon them and with them always, surely then the nations would see for themselves, question, then the nations would have visual proof of the existence, activity, and grace of God, question, then the nations would come to know his way and his salvation and experience themselves that God rules righteously and leads his people like a shepherd. The same principle operates for us today. Non-Christian people are watching us. We claim to know, to love, and to follow Jesus Christ. We say that he is our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. What difference does he make to these Christians? The world asks searchingly. Where is their God? It may be said without fear of contradiction that the great hindrance to evangelism in the world today is the failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. Rightly may we pray for ourselves that we may have God's blessings and mercy and the light of his countenance, not that we may monopolize his grace and bask in the sunshine of his favor, but that others may see in us his blessing and his beauty and be drawn to him through us. End quote. What a comment. The great Mr. John Stott included Psalm 67 in his book of favorite psalms. Now what in the world does this mean? Is it true about us this morning? Do you and I, do we demonstrate with the lives that we live from day to day of God's power and God's saving grace? And do we effect is the saving power and grace of God in our lives, is that effectual? Do others see it? Do others experience God in us? Do others look at our lives and say there is something tangibly different about those Christians at Baptist Christian Church? 
There's something otherworldly about them. There's something that's not normal and usual. They have something that the world does not have. And this was the great purpose of Aaron's blessing. The Lord keep you. The Lord protect you. Make his face to shine upon you. That Israel would be a light and a witness of the grace and the glory and the goodness of God to the nations that surrounded him. Them. Dr. Boyce asked this piercing question. If being a Christian were a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I'd say that's probably a pretty good question to ask. If being a Christian were a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The power of God's word. How are the nations to be blessed by God? It will not happen through osmosis. As much as we would like to think that it would. Nor is it some mystical or magical process. But the nations will be blessed by God through the people of God worshiping, praising, appropriating the blessings of Aaron in their own lives. And they will also know God by us promoting and preaching and teaching God's word. God's people must know the Bible themselves. And knowing the Bible themselves, they can instruct others of how to know God. Now, I want to draw on this priestly imagery. Did you know the Bible says that you're a priest? Whoever would have thought such a thing? Can you believe that the Bible would say that you... Christian Baptist Christian Church this Lord's Day morning that every one of you are priests Somebody says well, I've never been to seminary And one some other says well, I don't know about all that. I don't know if I'm a priest or not I certainly don't feel like a priest Well, it's really not about what you feel. It's about what God says. I have three key passages this morning on the priesthood of every believer the priesthood of every believer the Bible plainly teaches every believer is a priest. The role of the priest in ancient Israel was twofold. First, they were to mediate the sacrifices. That's they officiated all the offerings and sacrifices that were being given in ancient Israel. But the second one is that they were to instruct the people from the word of God. Firstly, Romans 15, 15 through 16. I'll quote it for you here. But on some points I have written to you, this is Paul, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service. What in the world, Paul, are you talking about? Priestly service of the gospel of God priestly service of the gospel of God. What does this mean, Paul? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, well, Brother Joel, that's fine and dandy for good old St. Paul. But I don't know that I'm too much of a priest. Well, let's keep reading. 
Because Paul says this. He says that he had the priestly service of the gospel of God. The priestly service is connected to the gospel of God. And what this means is Paul viewed himself as a priest by bringing others unto God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What did the priests do in ancient Israel? When the, when the Israelites came with their offering, whether it was a pair of turtle doves or a lamb or a goat or an oxen, the priest would help the people to make their offering on the brazen altar. And that way, the priest of ancient Israel bridged the gap between God and Israel. They were a mediator. But let's keep reading on. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my co covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Exodus 19 says that... All of Israel were priests. It's not just the Levites that were priests, but the nation, national Israel, was a nation of priests. What were they to be doing? They were to be living for God and telling others of how they could come to know the God of Israel. And perhaps the most telling of all these passages is 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10. through 10. This passage is most certainly written to Gentile Christians in the New Covenant. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As believer priests, our responsibility in the new covenant is, as Peter says, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into God's wonderful light. Our lives, all that we have, all that we are, are to be used in the furtherance of God's eternal redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. It's not just that you and I are doing the best we can and that we're ho-hum, rum-dum sort of Christians that are just doing moving forward in a direction generally, but it, that we are to be priests. We are a royal priesthood. We are to be little priests that are bridging the gap between a lost and dying world and between a God who has grace and mercy and love and compassion and who can save to the uttermost. That is the great purpose of Baptist Christian Church, to be a royal priesthood, standing in the gap between God who is holy and high and lifted up and a world who is without hope lost and dying in the world. He tells you the purpose of all of our material blessings in verse 7. The earth has yielded its increase. Talking about the harvest. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Would be to God that we would catch a glimpse 
even a small glimpse of what God's purposes are for us, for us individually and for us as a church. We are to be a people basking in the sunshine of the smile of God Almighty. And we are to be a people who have been touched deeply by our God. A people who are characterized by mercy and by grace and by kindness and by compassion and by love. And us being characterized by that, we are to be standing in the gap between ourselves and our God and a lost and dying world. What is the purpose of your life? You are a royal priest. When you look in the mirror, do you see the crown on your head? Somebody says, I don't feel like a royal priest. It doesn't matter what you feel. It's what God says is true about you. Do you really believe that? Would be to God that we would take the mantle of the priesthood upon our own selves and bridge the gap, stand in the gap between our God and a lost and dying world just like Israel did in this great missionary psalm, Psalm 67. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your heart for the nations and that you share your heart with us. Lord, if our church is characterized by everything but being a royal priest, infighting, bickering, complaining, Lord, how are we going to perform this great office that you have called us to? Lord, sear this message on our hearts that our purpose is not to push our own agenda. Our purpose is not to push our own opinions. Our purpose is to glorify Christ.